This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. When Joe Biden sought the presidency back in 2020, he wasn't running just to be the leader of the US, but, to use an old-fashioned phrase, the leader of the free world, or a world leader at the very least. Well, this week brought a big moment, a debut moment on the world stage for Joe Biden in the form of an address to the United Nations General Assembly, or UNGA, which meets every year around this time in New York. It came after what has been a really choppy few weeks for Biden internationally. First with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, in many people's books, a botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also a kind of collapse in relations between the United States and its oldest ally, France. So with all that in the background, I wanted to talk to Dr. Leslie Vinjamori. She's the director of the US and America's programme at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs here in London. And I began by asking Leslie Vinjamori how Joe Biden's fellow world leaders viewed him when he first took office in January this year. It's an excellent question. I think he was seen as uh, the symbol of hope. And not only because of the, the four years, the very destructive and disruptive years of Donald Trump, but also, of course, the, the January 6th attacks, the insurrection on the Capitol. And, and January 20th was, you know, only a couple of weeks later. And so to see an American president that stood up, that, that talked the talk of morals and values and multiculturalism and globalism in America's back, and really you spoke a language that had been very familiar for a very long period of time and then had gone almost completely quiet I think was extraordinary and, and, and expectations have been and certainly were on that day phenomenally high. So there was a sort of sense that normal service might be resumed with Joe Biden at the helm. And that would have been in the air in the lead up uh, going into the United Nations General Assembly, uh, which opened this week. I mean, this was a much more new, muted UNGA, I know is the abbreviation people use for the United Nations General Assembly. This was a much more muted one than normal, fewer national leaders around, not the kind of New York gridlock that people are used to. But I think there were a couple of other more substantial clouds on the horizon in terms of 
Joe Biden and how he was going to be seen on the world stage making his debut at the UN General Assembly. Well, absolutely. And and as you've alluded to, uh, the first thing, of course, is that the United States is deeply worried about the Delta variant. COVID is far from over. But I think in the immediate aftermath of the of the exit from Afghanistan, of the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban, um, 20 years of fighting that war, 20 years since 9-11, to see these leaders gathered in New York with clearly um, not the level of cooperation that many had hoped for, European allies being very upset uh, about the nature of that exit, many about the fact of the exit. And then, of course, the recent announcement of the AUK-US, the so-called AUKUS agreement, that excluded France, that excluded uh, the European Union, that didn't communicate it in advance. All of these things, I think, have sort of thrown up red flags about what this U.S. president um, really means when he talks about partnerships and alliances, although I think he was very clear in his speech. He said, we will work with our allies when it's possible. Not always, not as the first priority, um, but when it's possible. Well, let's get, those are exactly the clouds on the horizon I had in mind. So let's just look closely at both of them. Let's start with the Afghan withdrawal, because, of course, President Biden did talk about that and he spoke about closing the chapter on uh, 20 years of war and tried to convince his audience that that they should embrace this, that this was going to be a good thing, a, a United States that was involved in one less war. And as we close this period of relentless war, we're opening a new era of relentless diplomacy. How convinced do you think his audience would have been by that? What will they have made of how he himself there in front of them explained the Afghan withdrawal? Well, I think, uh, you know, that's a very diverse audience. And and I think the first thing to note is that the United States and NATO exiting Afghanistan doesn't mean that the Afghanistan uh, question, that stability has been delivered, that there aren't grave uncertainties and risks in the region. And so many of those who, who participate, who come to UNGA, uh, are going to be directly uh, affected by regional instability, by the question of uh, refugees, of humanitarianism, by the ongoing concern as to whether there will be a civil war, whether there will be terrorism um, as a result. And so I think the the uncertainty uh, is, is significant. And so people will have been thinking about that as Joe Biden spoke. And they, I think, to a degree, will have certainly seen a United States that um, is executing on its uh, on its statement. It's it's very clear intention to refocus its strategic priorities on Asia, but but certainly with the price tag attached to it, and that's the United States saying, you know, this is we're we're not taking the Middle East, we're not taking humanitarianism as seriously as some may wish us to do so. I mean, on the Afghan withdrawal, there will have obviously been some people, some countries very obviously uh, alarmed by it, both both the fact of it and also the manner of it. And we've talked about some of those allies who didn't like the fact that they felt they were kind of bounced into this August 31st withdrawal date without consultation and so on. But who in the room, and you've mentioned it's a very diverse audience there in that UN General Assembly, who who might have been more well disposed to Joe Biden and the United States because of it than they would have been before? Well, I think that for the major adversaries of the US, whether it's China or Russia, uh, seeing things um, go less than smoothly 
um, having uh, a vacuum, a window of opportunity created in Afghanistan and the region. Um, these are things that, you know, certainly are, are, are well received, unfortunately, um, by, by those adversaries. And I think that's something that the U.S. is going to have to contend with, as are its allies and partners. A diplomatic row has broken out over a new defence and security partnership between Britain, America and Australia. The deal will deliver... Well, we did mention there were two big clouds on the horizon, the other one being AUKUS, this Australia-UK-US agreement to equip the Australian Navy with nuclear-powered submarines to patrol the Pacific. I mean, that put the AUKUS into AUKUS. It's strained relations between the United States and France. Not only was France not consulted, it only learned of the deal hours before it was announced to the world. C'est vraiment en bon français uh, un coup dans le dos. This really is a stab in the back. There was a whole to-do at the beginning of the week where the two men, Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron of France, couldn't even get together to speak. I know they did uh, have a half-hour conversation later on in the week. Uh, but Macron was obviously so livid about the move, he withdrew France's ambassador to Washington for the first time in a 240-year relationship between the two countries. So how serious is this fallout between Washington and Paris? Is it just a diplomatic squall that passes? Or, or do you think this is something rather graver? Well, I think it is very serious. It, and it's also something that clearly the, the Biden administration didn't anticipate. At the same time, I think that there must have been a decision at some point made between uh, the US, the UK and Australia, that it was more important to achieve the strategic partnership and to put it in place than it was to, to consult, uh, ask for uh, forgiveness, not permission. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it also goes to, to demonstrate that, that vital point, which is that Joe Biden is absolutely laser sharp in his focus on moving America forward in its strategic priorities. He's made what those are very clear. Uh, he's also, as we know, confronted by deep challenges uh, within the United States uh, from COVID. And then his, you know, his push domestically to really transform the United States through economic investment, social infrastructure. And he's facing an, a really tough battle in Congress to do those things. So I think, you know, the president has decided at home that bipartisanship is less important than transformation. And abroad, he's decided that um, deterring China is more important than um, satisfying America's allies in, in every single instance. It's really interesting this way he treated uh, the one ally. I mean, what, what you say about he'd rather, you know, ask forgiveness than than ask permission of France. And that's how it's ended up. As if almost he wasn't sure he could trust France, A, to say yes, but B, to keep it to themselves, what he was planning with Australia. And it was incredibly secretive. It stayed under wraps right until it was announced. But it hasn't really been well understood in Paris. And I was very struck, just wanted to hear what you thought of this, by the remarks of the French foreign minister on Tuesday uh, told reporters that the spirit of Donald Trump's approach to dealing with allies is still the same under Joe Biden. Uh, in other words, that the kind of America first-ism of Donald Trump is still the policy of the United States under Joe Biden. He may put it in a kinder, gentler way, but he's still, you know, Trumpist in his approach. What do you think of that? Is the French foreign minister 
you know, making a fair point there, or is that just crazy? Uh, it's regrettable that the French foreign minister is, has uh, been put in a difficult position and that he's very upset, but of course it's preposterous. Uh, this is a U.S. president that, I mean, on any number of things, bears no resemblance uh, to Donald Trump. He has put climate at the top of his agenda. He has put science at the heart of U.S. policy at home and, and overseas. But the more important thing for this president, again, is that feeling of the in, the potential insecurity of the United States and the Europeans and the rest of the of the liberal democratic world, which is, again, what he's so focused on. Um, in the face of a, a rising China that simply isn't playing by the rules at best and at worst presents a very profound threat. But you know, most nations are thinking uh, first and foremost about their own strategic agenda. They're consulting. And, and I think that uh, this is just an American president under who's gotten it wrong, certainly on, on multiple occasions uh, on, the sh- on the important but second order things, which are consulting, but is, is largely getting it right on, on the more fundamentals. Well, let's go to those fundamentals, particularly uh, with this AUKUS move, because at the heart of that, it is, as you've been saying, about China. It severely damages regional peace and stability, intensifies the arms race, and jeopardizes international efforts promoting the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. This is a highly irresponsible act. The UN Secretary General in New York warned that uh, you know that this risked a new Cold War if um, if both sides, you know, US and China, were not careful. Joe Biden went out of his way to say that's not his goal. The United States is ready to work with any nation that steps up and pursues peaceful resolution to shared challenges, even if we have intense disagreements in other areas. We're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks, he said. But he did call it an inflection point in history. And, you know, between the lines, it was pretty obvious what he was saying when he said, you know, the choices between those who give their their people the ability to breathe free versus those who uh, seek to suffocate their people with, his phrase, an iron hand authoritarianism. I mean, it does sound a bit like a cold war. Is that what you think's happening here? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I think that Joe Biden has been very clear, uh, as, you, as you've said, that he's not aiming for a cold war, uh, in large part because the, the, the potential downside of not engaging with China is, is catastrophic for the globe. And, and he's made it quite clear that the strategy is a, is a two-track strategy, cooperate with China on the big global challenges but pushing pretty hard on when it comes to deterrence. And if you go back to AUKUS, uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy that, that we witnessed during COVID, China's attacks and aggression towards Australia, I think we simply um, have created a situation where, where this kind of strategic partnership was highly desirable to the Australians, driven and initiated by Australia, and, and very important for keeping the lines of communication and trade open and and durable going forward. And that's important to, to, frankly, everybody in the world. Wolf warrior diplomacy. It's a very arresting phrase. Just to unpack for us what that refers to. Oh, I think when when Australia decided that it was going to investigate um, questions of COVID, the the threats, the manipulation, the the economic uh, attacks that, that emerged from China were just... Um, not at all what one would anticipate um, from what was a very measured uh, 
decision on the part of the Australians. It became known as the the Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, I think, because it sort of describes exactly what it's what it says on the tin. It's an aggressive style of diplomacy that the Chinese have been pursuing. Absolutely. It's an amazing idea that you could simultaneously be involved in this kind of jostling and rivalry regionally, like in the Pacific, uh, with submarines and tooling up the Australians to be armed and strong against China, and simultaneously say, we can be hand in hand to deal with the big global challenges, climate and COVID. Uh, I mean, it obviously takes two to tango. Do you think the Chinese themselves are up for that kind of relationship with Joe Biden? Yeah, we'll lock swords region by region, but on the big things, we're going to be partners. I think it's going to be tough. But this and this is the one area where the Cold War analogy probably does shed some light on the current situation. Even during the Cold we have the sense that the world wasn't divided into two blocks and there was no communication. But we know that's not true. We know that there was were arms control talks. We know that there were any number of talks that were trying to dial down the tensions throughout much of the Cold War at the same time that the Soviet Union and the Americans were building up their nuclear arsenals and fighting proxy wars across Africa and Latin America. So, you know, cooperation and competition exist side by side. And on the climate question, I think it a lot comes down to what you think China's motivation is for increasing its commitment to reducing uh, emissions and really hitting those targets. If you think that China values its reputation globally. It's certainly pinned a lot on its climate diplomacy. Then I think that 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 would suggest that they have their own reasons for cooperating, um, even in the face of a, a lot of hard pressure from the United States on, on other issues. Well, the rest of the world was very much uh, looking forward to the arrival of Joe Biden, at least that part of the world that was so keen to see the back of Donald Trump. And so, Leslie, give us a report card on how they see uh, Donald Give us a report card on how Joe Biden did, particularly in uh, winning over those countries. And he was very busy. He did a lot uh, just in the last few days, announcing that America would double its contribution to $11 billion to the fund to deal with the global climate crisis, announcing that 500 million uh, shots of the vaccine would go from the uh, United States, the anti-COVID vaccine, to countries that are poorest and need it. And also that the he would, in a way, wind back big parts of the Trump legacy with the United States rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, the World Health Organization, even perhaps being a candidate for the rather controversial UN Human Rights Council. Uh, taking together all those moves he made this week, but also in general, uh, what Marx, do you think, Leslie, the countries that feared and trembled when Donald Trump took to the podium at the United Nations, what marks would they give him for his speech, but also for the policies his administration is pursuing in general? I think the um, the speech was was excellent. It, it really hit the the most important global challenges. It, it demonstrated a commitment. But at the end of the day, this is a world in which most people around the globe are suffering the consequences of COVID. They are suffering the health consequences. They are suffering the the, the current and, and certainly future consequences of debt, of slower movement um, in, in some parts of the world, potentially of inflation. 
But I think if, if the U.S. president can't ultimately deliver those vaccines, if America doesn't get right out in front of vaccine diplomacy, um, then the rest of it's going to pale in comparison and people will be just tremendously dissatisfied with U.S. leadership. So right now, America's soft power is really going to depend on really delivering those vaccines and delivering an international effort that, that can make that possible and make it possible very, very quickly. So all told, Leslie, those world leaders who did get into New York and may, as we speak, be heading home or arriving back home, do you think they return more confident or more impressed by Joe Biden and his administration than they were before? Or is it the other way around? I think they come back with a measure, a a, a clear dose of reality an awareness that it's going to be difficult, that it is difficult, but that this is a president who is committed to moving things in the right direction. But it's not going to be easy and it's not always going to happen in the way that that people want it to happen. Leslie, we always ask um, people on the podcast a what else question. Uh, This one is a bit related, actually, because the what else is uh, about Iran and their new president also uh, made his debut at the UN, uh, saying that the world didn't really care much about America is back because the US couldn't be trusted. There's a lot of hope that somehow, one way or another, the Iran nuclear deal can be stitched back together again. Famously, Donald Trump uh, took the US out of it. I mean, on a scale of one to 10, how doable is that for Joe Biden, given how much else we've been talking about he's got on his plate? I think it's gotten harder. This is this is a, a policy that I think that the President Biden has, should have moved on much more quickly. The longer he's waited, the harder it's become. Not least because he is now trying to make so many things happen domestically. The Republicans have never been supportive of the Iran deal. Uh, he needs some domestic support in order to to get his own uh, agenda through at home. So playing that card, expending that political capital, is something that he will be very carefully calculating. But the situation in the Middle East, I think, has just made it that much more difficult. And of course, America is always thinking about how will Israel react or what are are the regional implications for for this kind of measure. So I think it's it's further out of reach than it had been. It continues to be a commitment um, of this administration. But there is a question of, you know, whether going back into the old deal is really on the cards anymore or whether Americans and even the administration will will want a whole lot more. Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And that is all from me for this week. To hear how Joe Biden got on with the British Prime Minister, listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly as Heather Stewart tells us what it's been like following Boris Johnson around New York and Washington, D.C., one of the PM's first foreign trips since the pandemic began. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer this week was Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.